resilience isn't something that happens over here with technical professionals. It has to happen with your walking and biking advocates, your affordable housing advocates. It has to tie all those pieces together. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity. My name is John Zimmerman. I'm the founder of the Active Towns Initiative, and I'm humbled and honored to serve as your host each week on this podcast journey. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always wonderful to have you along for the ride. Today is Friday, May 14th, 2021. And in this week's episode, I'm grateful to share with you a conversation I recently had with Dr. Billy Fields, Associate Professor of Political Science at Texas State University, which is located in the city of San Marcos here in the Central Texas region. Our discussion covers a broad range of topics, including the freedom that comes from mobility choice, the progress being made in San Marcos, and the annual study abroad program he leads to the Netherlands. We also talk about his newly released book, Adaptation Urbanism and Resilient Communities, Transforming Streets to Address Climate Change, published by Rutledge. But before we roll into those discussions, please allow me a very brief moment to acknowledge that this episode is being brought to you by the generous contributions of our donors, sponsors, and monthly patrons on our Patreon page. And if you too would like to help support my efforts, please head over to my website at activetowns.org and click on that bright blue donate button in the top right corner of the page. Another way you can help is to tell a friend about the podcast. Word of mouth is still the best way to grow the culture of activity movement. And one final reminder before we get started, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on your preferred listening platform. Thanks. Okay, time to get this conversation with Professor Billy Fields off and rolling. Billy, hey, it's so wonderful to connect with you here today. Welcome to the Active Towns podcast. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. You know, hey, speaking of here, <laughs> so sorry we couldn't actually meet up in person. Uh, you you live on the north side of town here in Austin, and I could have easily jumped on the bike and taken some recording equipment up there. We're getting so very, very close. I hope uh, to be getting my second uh, uh, vaccination dose here very, very soon. And 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 so I, I get the feeling that we're getting close to, uh, I, it seems like there's light uh, ahead <laughs> for us all. So, um, hey, you know what? Let's do this. Uh, to get us started, why don't you just take a few uh, moments to share with the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so... How did I get here? Uh, (laughs) I'm from New Orleans originally, and I got a PhD from the University of New Orleans back in 2004 and then moved to uh, in in urban studies and urban planning, Uh, moved to Washington, D.C. and was working at the Rails to Trails Conservancy. Hurricane Katrina happened and I was really wanted to work on helping recovery. Uh, So I reluctantly left uh, Rails to Trails Conservancy, which I loved and really missed the trail work and began work on kind of a combination of disaster uh, planning uh, and policy. I did that for a few years at the University of New Orleans but was still, I still had the academic itch. So I moved to Texas State 10 years ago and have been in the Department of Political Science since then. I'm now an associate uh, professor. 
And what I look at is, is actually the same things that I've been looking at for quite a long time. Trails, active transportation, and then particularly with sort of the push of climate change, resilience and how we can be more resilient over time, both to disasters and then to the emerging climate crisis and, and, and the pandemic crisis that we currently are, are involved in now. Fantastic. Now you're okay. So Texas State, you mentioned Texas State University. Uh, for those in the audience that may not be familiar with Texas State, uh, tell us a little bit about the the university. Yeah, Texas State is located in San Marcos, Texas, about 27 miles south of Austin. And it used to be called Southwest Texas State University. In fact, I did my only bicycle race ever that started from there way back when. We won't mention the year. I got dropped in the first two miles and rode the rest of the way by myself. Uh, <laughs> luckily, I avoided the crashes that way. But it's a it's a beautiful school uh, located on the banks of the San Marcos River. Uh, there's just a beautiful spring-fed river there. Lovely place and an interesting place. It's uh, one of, San Marcos is one of the fastest growing cities in the country. So the whole I-35 corridor is experiencing this tremendous growth. But unfortunately, a lot of what it's experiencing is, is a tremendous sprawl at the same time. So figuring out how to grow and grow effectively has really been uh, kind of one of the areas uh, that we need to address here in Central Texas. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And one of the things that I love about San Marcos is it has that quintessential Texas downtown core, historic downtown core. And you had mentioned that it's it's growing. It's one of the fastest growing areas. It's it's experiencing that uh, horizontal expansion out. And you're just like, no, <laughs> because yeah, it, it does have such good bones in the old historic area. It, it does. And that's one of the, the more interesting things as well, is there's kind of two stories. There's this expansion, this sprawl that's clearly happening. But at the same time, you're seeing this real redensification of the core and the San Marcos has the old Texas courthouse right in the center. Uh, and you, over the last 10 years, just since I've been there, it's an amazing amount of sort of new buildings and kind of weaving the city back together. And you've seen kind of a, 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 as well with a growth of walking and biking and connections to the university. So there are a lot of positive developments. At the same time, you've got this, this other splooging factor that's happening at the same time. And what's interesting, too, and I, I, I don't get down there very frequently, but uh, I do try to make it down there every once in a while just to kind of get get an idea as to how things are moving along and transforming. And uh, and and I think the last time I was down there, I saw some indications that uh, things are kind of moving in the right direction in terms of some transformation of streets. There was, a, a I think, a new protected bike lane going in. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's been really interesting there. Uh, the the planning department is really looking uh, to to figure out ways to sort of tie the community back together. And there's several different cycle track projects going in. There was just a redevelopment of one of the central streets right adjacent to the San Marcos River that actually includes bio infiltration and a number of sort of elements so that when it rains, the, the, the sort of pollution doesn't run right off into the uh, river. Uh, and that also includes, you know, curb bulb outs, a number of sort of pedestrian treatments. And really what you've seen is, you know, we can get into the wonky world of infrastructure and little bits and pieces. But what it does is it creates this lovely sort of place building aspect to it. So not only does it, is it stopping the pollution from running into the river and making it safer to walk, 
It's also just really lovely and nice, and it's making downtown San Marcos really, really uh, an attractive destination, both for people kind of coming in and maybe going to restaurants and whatnot, but also living particularly students having access to campus because it's right next door. So instead of students moving uh, away and having to drive distances, you're seeing this kind of critical mass developing downtown. So it's a really interesting place to study and to just be and look at what's happening. So I really I really uh, am appreciative to be at Texas State uh, and to look at kind of the transformation of San Marcos. And I know many other communities are experiencing similar sorts of issues. So this sort of small town to medium-sized town problem that Texas State is experiencing or San Marcos is experiencing is one that you see in lots of places. Yeah. And you have that ready-made sort of orientation towards active mobility as a university town, as a college town, because you have all of these students that are there. And if it is safe and if it is inviting, you know, there's that natural inclination to not go out of the way to get into a motor vehicle to go a short distance to the downtown area to meet their daily needs. Um, at the same time, uh, the very first time I was there in uh, in San Marcos, in fact, the, the the very first two times I was there in San Marcos, the thing that I came away with is some of the streets are just hostile and oversized. So it was really nice to see some of the right sizing and some of the, the, the space being carved out for active mobility. Right. And this speaks to issues with pretty much everybody in the United States will recognize this issue. There's the local planning authority and then there's the state. Uh, some of the roads are state roads and the state roads are very difficult to manage for place and safety. Uh, they're all designed to get you to go as fast as possible through places that you shouldn't go fast as possible. <laughs> uh, and San Marcos has a number of those, uh, you know, that go right through the heart of the community. And so it's a real challenge to balance those uh, text dot roads with uh, the sort of local roads. Uh, but it slowly, I mean, it's Texas, so we still we got a ways to go on a lot of uh, sort of the active transportation side. But over the course of the time that I've taught there, it's been really interesting. I've, I've started to have students show up on electric skateboards. When the facilities get built, all of a sudden freedom gets inserted into people's lives. And I've had lots of great conversation with, with students. You know, they show up in class with the electric skateboard. I'm like, oh, how is that? It might not be for me, but it certainly op opens a lot of opportunities for lots of other people. So you just mentioned a word there. You said the freedom gets instilled. And when you, you sort of put that out there to the students, how do they respond to that? I, I've been working on this freedom angle for a while. I should have also mentioned I lead a study abroad program to the Netherlands and have for the last five years. Uh, and we spend a lot of time in Amsterdam, Rotterdam and Delft. And Delft is really where I, I, I began to really understand freedom of active transportation. There's a little street that's right next to the train station. You may have you may have been there. It's the world's first Wernerf. My Dutch is horrible. Please apologize. Uh, and I can't. What is it? What Westerstraat? Uh, I think is the name of the street. Anyway, I was I was there the first time. I was just off the airplane. We show up there, and all of a sudden, there's this this little this kid walking around. Uh, walked right out the front door. Walking right down the street. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. It's safe. And once you get safety, you start seeing different people. So it could be kids, it could be older folks, it could be people on skateboards. There's this freedom that develops. And as I began to take students to the Netherlands over time, we kept focusing on this. They're like, oh, there are these things that I experience here 
that I've never even thought of at home because I, I, you know, there's fast moving cars and I can't go there and I can't do this. Well, when you uh, make it safer, all of a sudden you have this freedom. And it was always strange because, you know, the U.S. home of the free land of the brave. And we have so much less freedom in some areas, particularly when it comes to streets and how we experience streets. And uh, exploring the Netherlands was just completely mind blowing in terms of that freedom that you experience there. Yeah. When I'm hearing you talk through this, I'm thinking you have choice. You have choice in mobility. And at the same time, you also, because it's such an incredibly welcoming all ages and abilities environment, you also have this empowerment that's built into this this mobility choice that, that is available there. And that's when the kids are, are like, you know, it's, hey, they're actually empi- empowered and encouraged to be able to get around, uh, you know, in their own free will. And it's amazing to see and experience and study, I suppose, how impactful that is on their development. Yeah, I've... I- I, as the sort of researcher in me, is always searching for ways to get at that, and I haven't found a good way yet. It's it's sort of the experiential side that I felt, but the I several times we've been there when the schools actually will go out and they give a test to to kids who are like a, I think it's ten or eleven something like that, and they they go out and they they basically let them explore the city on their bike and their parents who are around the area. And then at the end of this, they get like a certificate or something that says, oh, you're now free to experience the city. (laughs) And watching these packs of kids roam around and then watching them, you know, the older kids who have already gone through and gotten that sort of certificate of of freedom uh, is fascinating to sort of watch and experience. And sadly, one of the things that's happened, I, I have a child and that's not the sad part. It's a very great part. <laughs> but the sad part is taking him to the Netherlands and then bringing him back here and watching his freedom shrink. Because basically when he was younger, we would just let him roam around. We actually went to a square in Delft and we said, go count the number of bicycles that you see around the edges of the square. And he came back like 15 minutes later and there was like 125 bikes or something like that. And he had had just this big time. And we came back to the U.S. and all of a sudden that freedom shrunk and his world shrunk. And it's still a lovely and nice place here. You know, there's lots of stuff. And we live in a kind of little bubble that lets him explore. But the, but that bubble was way smaller than it was in the Netherlands. And to me, that I would love to figure out a way to really rigorously start to poke at that and study it and see what those differences are and, and look at sort of, you know, both individual development, but also sort of city development and sort of that feeling that you get when you, when you have that freedom. So you mentioned that you take the university uh, students uh, over there to the Netherlands for this experiential learning. How many years now have you been doing that? Oh, uh, it's five, although we've, we uh, sadly have had a little break uh, <laughs> this, this year and sadly last year as well. Yeah, I started, I actually went, uh, I run a program called the International Sustainable Transportation Engagement Program, ISTEP, which is the idea was we're going to link 
U.S.-based professionals in transportation to folks who could, you know, use our assistance. And though it would work both ways. So we were doing a project in Romania, in Brasov in Romania, where they're lovely, wonderful people, and we were working with them. And we accidentally stopped off in the Netherlands. It's just that the way I was on a KLM flight, and the KLM flight stopped in Amsterdam. And I, th- I said, oh, well, we should go check this place out. And we went and explored, and all of a sudden I was like, I have got to bring students here. (laughs) This is incredible. So basically for uh, the five years after that, I've been running the I-STEP program uh, for students. And any student can come. It's not just Texas State students. Uh, So if you're a student out there and you'd like to come maybe next year, let me know. But basically what we do is a program where we start in Amsterdam and Amsterdam's tough because there's it's just like the deep end of the bicycle pool. There's so much action and energy and uh, it's actually almost a little overwhelming. When we step back and go to Delft, all of a sudden it's slower and easier to understand. We also visit Zwala in the north, which is another lovely little place that allows you to mentally see all the different pieces that fit together. And then we go to Rotterdam, and Rotterdam is is just about the right mental framework for our, my students. I actually, most of the time, they tell me that they like Rotterdam more than Amsterdam, because Rotterdam basically was was bombed during World War II, came back and built up like a modernist city, and then basically has had intervention after intervention after intervention to make it more walkable and bikeable. Uh, And it's not the most walkable or bikeable place in the Netherlands, but it's really accessible. So this sort of process of taking the students and then watching how their perceptions change over time is, is pretty amazing. I really enjoy doing that. Hopefully someday we can work on a professional program as well, because it works both for students, professionals, for anybody. But it's really mind boggling to look at change because streets aren't, you know, we can change streets. We make up the rules. We can change the rules. And the Netherlands is a great example about how changing the rules changes streets and it changes behavior and it opens freedom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And for uh, frequent uh, listeners to the Active Towns podcast, they've heard me say over and over and over again that Rotterdam is one of the greatest examples from a North American context for the reasons that you just highlighted there. Uh, In the fact that when they built back from World War II, they built back on a car first model. And to your point, yeah. they realize that, oh, my gosh, we did the wrong thing. And they're they are proving your point that it, it, it's it's not etched in stone. You can change these things. And so they uh, year after year are are transforming their environment into a much more walkable, bikeable environment. And they're also bringing people back in to living in the city center, which is what the other thing that sort of happened, you know, when they rebuilt after World War II is that uh, people were sort of driven out of the downtown area. And it was like, a you know, a place where people came into to work and then left again. And so they're reversing that trend as well. So they're reversing a lot of the, the land use patterns that, you know, again, sort of fell in lockstep with what happened in North America. So that's been a, a wonderful uh, example. Now, I had to chuckle uh, earlier because, you know, I guess the, the whole Netherlands thing for you was a happy accident. It really was. <laughs> I had been studying. Uh, it, I mean, I knew it existed. <laughs> I had been there in the 90s, long time ago. 
and went and said, this place is great. I need to come back sometime. And as somebody who studies bicycling and active transportation, it was on my list. So I I, I did stop there intentionally, but the the sort of I didn't know how many doors it would open. Really, that, that experience both led to the work that I had been doing with the students, but it also led to a book project that, that I have coming out, Adaptation, Urbanism, and Resilient Communities. So I said before that I study active transportation and resilience and disasters. So water is a big deal in the Netherlands. Managing water uh, is kind of at the core of what they do. And I got really interested in this sort of intersection of walking, biking, and water. And coming from New Orleans, like I have this sort of sense of, of water as a threat. The Dutch have that as well, but they also have this sort of living with water concept that's developed. And when you start to look at the Netherlands, what you start to see is this combination of, you know, active transportation and water and management and putting them all together in these really livable cities. So Rotterdam for me was this perfect combination. I, I went there and worked on uh, some projects with HZ University and Lilian Geerling, who's one of the co-authors of, of the book, along with John Rennie and uh, Tara Tolford. John Rennie and I worked on the whole thing, and then Tara Tolford worked on my New Orleans section, and Lilian worked on the Rotterdam section. But the resilience work that's going on in Rotterdam is amazing. They have a water square, basically, where most of the time it's like really nice and it's like a basketball court and whatnot. And then when it rains, it fills up with water because most of Rotterdam is below sea level. So if you got a place that's below sea level, you better figure out what to, where the water is going to go. It's like a physical problem. It's got to go somewhere. And so for a long time, we tried to bury that water to drain the city away. And we put roads uh, on top of it. And the Dutch did the same thing. They went in the rubble of World War II, got dumped into the canals. Canals were laid over and these big roads developed. And basically what the Dutch have been doing is taking those out, putting the canals back in, uh, managing that water and living with water. And then at the same time, consciously putting uh, walking and biking facilities so you have low greenhouse gas emissions. So this idea of putting these things together, that's really where the impetus for the, for the book came from as well, from that trip, that fortuitous trip. That's great. That's great. And it, uh, I, I'm going to uh, read off the entire title here. So it's the Adaptation, Urbanism, and Resilient Cities, Transforming Streets to Address Climate Change. Right, uh, which is a mouthful. So I'm an academic, so we have to, we have to make it jargony. Uh, <laughs> but the book actually has a lot of non-jargon. The idea is really resilience is this uh, is this sort of buzzword. Uh, probably during the pandemic, you've heard it a billion times. You need to be more resilient, blah, blah, blah. Well, resilience as an academic concept really has, has sprung forward, particularly after Katrina. There were almost no citations to resilience during the 1990s and urban planning, which is weird. We kind of trace this in the book. And then during the early 2000s and then the 20 teens, you saw this dramatic rise in the use of resilience. Well, what does resilience mean? Is resilience bouncing back to what we had before? Well, in, a, in an age of climate change, bouncing back isn't going to work for us. We need to figure out how to bounce forward. And so what we look at in the book is how do we bounce forward? We trace this sort of evolution of resilience ideas. We look at uh, different, different resilience plans in uh, several different communities, Rotterdam, Copenhagen, London, and then in the U.S., New Orleans, and Miami. And what we look at is how are we adapting to climate change and, and simultaneously trying to decrease our greenhouse gas emissions? And what we look at is this idea of adaptation urbanism, adapting the city 
then the city itself becomes this way of lowering greenhouse gas emissions if you tie everything together. So this sort of non-siloed thinking about how you tie compact development, active transportation, sustainable transportation, blue and green infrastructure, and then with a real focus on equity. Those are the sort of core elements of adaptation urbanism. And we look at these different communities and look at their sort of the way that the trajectory that they've been on. And some places are doing more really interesting stories out of Copenhagen and Rotterdam, some interest out of London, some out of New Orleans, Miami, challenged, lots of cars, water bubbling up through the limestone. Still some great projects there, but in some places you've seen this just dramatic change of thinking, particularly about streets and how streets can basically be used to transform our cities. They represent about 30% of all city space. When you take parking in, it can jump up to 50% of city space. So imagine that we rethought city space, rethought transportation on our streets, and we used it to manage water, to decrease our greenhouse gas emissions, and then more importantly, created livable spaces. And there's, it's, it's hard over you know words to talk about this, but experiencing these places just dramatically transformed uh, what, what I saw was possible. And hopefully readers of the book will get that sort of sensation as well. Yeah. Well, we're looking forward to this book. So what, what's the timing on this? Uh, May 4th, finally. It's, it's been going on for years now. <laughs> we were just about finished and the pandemic started. Literally, I was like weeks away from turning it in. And we have this, you know, the, probably the most dramatic rethinking of streets that are out there. So we include a prologue that looks at that. And then I had to go back and look uh, at all the chapters and update the chapters based around what was happening. But the, the moment of the pandemic has really been this sort of rethinking. You know, some people use the opportunity framework that the pandemic or any disaster is an opportunity. And I, I don't. Coming from New Orleans, disasters are horrible. This disaster has been horrible. All disasters are horrible. But what they are is moments of reassessment. If you're really looking at what happened, you look at what happened, you look at your life, you look at your city and you say, wow, this is a moment we could reassess what's there and then really figure out how to bounce forward. And we use that lens of resilience as a way to figure out how do we bounce forward, both to address the, the pandemic but at the same time to address this kind of emerging uh, climate crisis that we will be experiencing for, for, <laughs> for I don't even know how long. <laughs> so it's going to be transformative. So figuring out how to deal with both of those is really a challenge. Now, who is the audience? So uh, urban planners, transportation professionals, and then it's written, it's written from that perspective because that's, that's who I am. That's what I do. And increasingly, I've been trying to reach out to water professionals as well. There's a, it's, you know, the world is siloed. There's all sorts of great work that's going on all over the place. Water professionals are this amazing uh, sort of set of people who've been looking at how we rethink our water systems. Most of the time, though, they're not thinking about how we can rethink our transportation systems. And so what we've been trying to do is marry those sort of two movements together thinking about a street not just as a way to move cars or vehicles or water underneath the, in the pipes underneath, but how to marry those two pieces together to create better communities that then are this way to sort of show people, hey, if we make these changes, you get something out of this as well. Climate change is horrible and destructive, but if we begin to rethink water, we can create better places 
we still have sea level rise and the world is complicated. And like, if you push this idea too far, like we, you can't solve everything from this, right? But what you can do is you can begin to rethink your streets, improve water management locally, and decrease your greenhouse gas emissions. The two things we need to do, adapt our cities to climate change and then mitigate climate change, we can do with a rethinking of streets. Now, you've been working on this for some time. What's sort of your analysis of how we're moving things along here in North America? So the... I'll start with a kind of I'll, I'll start in the kind of resilience uh, climate change zone and then I'll, I'll move to kind of active transportation more generally. But in terms of resilience, we've seen this dramatic growth of resilience as a way of thinking. Most of the resilience plans you see in the U.S., however, focus only on one half of the equa equation, which is climate adaptation. So we figured out when you have a hurricane, you have to build your bridges higher. Uh, but we haven't figured out that the bridges uh, are the are the generators of greenhouse gas emissions. <laughs> so we need to figure out how to do both at the same time and tie those pieces together. We we definitely need to adapt our infrastructure and harden it to these uh, sort of changes in climate. But we also need on an everyday basis to figure out how to create more livable communities uh, that are safer, that decrease greenhouse gas emissions. On a, on a parallel track has been this sort of growth of active transportation. So I've been working, you know, worked at Rails to Trails back in 2005 to 2007 or so, and then had been working on in New Orleans uh, on walking and biking policy before that. And I knew so little in the early 2000s, and I thought I knew so much. And to me, the, uh, the growth of complete streets and then Vision Zero has been transformative. And then in the Netherlands, it's sustainable safety. And the idea really that you can transform the way that you build the built environment and that's how you get to safety rather than trying to get everybody to, uh, you know, you have a giant road, please drive slower. Well, that doesn't work. It's sending the signal that you need to drive as fast as possible. One side story real quickly, sorry. In our trips to Zwala, uh, we were on a bicycle street, which is basically kind of a red, it's, it's colored red. It has some traffic calming. And it works well in some places and not as well in others. We were on one of the streets where it wasn't working well in Zwala. And the person who is with us from the Feasterbond there, apologies, still can't pronounce Dutch, said, you know, we you need to repeat the message. And it was about traffic calming. And the idea was, is that when you have a bicycle street, you need traffic calming throughout the whole area so that people remember that they're on a bicycle street. And that idea of repeating the message has really stuck with me. Vision Zero and sustainable safety are about repeating that message all throughout your entire community so that you build whole networks of streets where the design speed and the speed people are going are the same. So uh, and it attaches to, you know, the sort of physical squishy body of people like we can only handle so much uh, force when there's a crash. So if there if you're going to have people walking and biking you need to have this, the streets designed so that people can't go faster so that uh, you have fatalities. And to me, that's, that's really been transformative. So there's this Vision Zero Complete Streets movement, this resilience movement on the other side that's looking at adaptation and, and hopefully increasingly looking at climate mitigation. Imagine that those two movements came together. And really what we're seeing is the outlines of that movement. It's kind of a nascent movement. It's not there yet. It's bubbling up. And really that's what our book looks at is like some, sometimes you have projects that do that, individual projects. And then in some areas, like in Copenhagen, you have whole resilience districts where they're rethinking streets and, and water and safety all at the same time. Yeah. It's interesting because we, we're, we're seeing, you know, 
several things that are that are sort of bubbling up and 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 starting to see the transformation in thought. Uh, and a, a couple of things that I'm thinking about here are obviously the the current attempt to rewrite the MUTCD, the NTSB, the National Traffic Safety Board, um, recently uh, starting to look at systemic safety and system safety uh, metrics and things of that nature, although they, they still continue to frustrate me with their reliance on not willing to be able to let go of the victim blaming side of things in terms of uh, wanting to make sure that they like this one guy had a a proposal to to try to mandate a helmet use. And it's just like, no, (laughs) it's like these are some of the things that we've learned worldwide that, you know, the way to go is like what you were saying, the sustainable uh, safety approach uh, of a system uh, versus like what the the Australians did, which was, you know, mandatory helmet use. And, and you know, one works and one most definitely doesn't work. And in fact, encourages less people to ride more frequently. Uh, so it's interesting to see how in this great human experiment, we've got all of these, you know, things that are being tested and trialed and whatnot. But then we also see such resistance to like, say, benchmarking off of countries that are actually doing it well. Well, what are some thoughts that you have on that? Because you've been at the forefront of studying this and then also taking students abroad what are some of the observations that you that you're having with their uptake of this type of of information? First, and sort of academic response. Uh, <laughs> let's see if it works for you. Deconstructing the transportation bureaucratic state is what we need to do. So there are all of these structures, right? These structures that limit the opportunities to to change, and we pretend like these structures are the safest structures. They're time tested over time and that you can't possibly change them. They're etched in stone. These structures are failing. They are producing the most greenhouse gas emissions from any sector. They're producing huge safety problems. They're, they are not working. And imagine if we, if we hit the reset button. And instead of pretending like everything that we've done for the last 50 years has been an unmitigated success, we said, let's start off at the same time and evaluate the status quo with the same intensity that we evaluate uh, something that's changed. And that's what we need to do. We need to hit the reset button. This is not working. It's not working from a climate change perspective. It's not working from a safety perspective. And one of the things we do in the book is look at these sort of opportunities, these metrics that to, for change. One of the things, uh, I'll just sort of pick one. I really like the idea of measuring mode share for walking and biking. Like you should set benchmarks for walking and biking and transit use. When I was at Rails to Trails, I remember I was looking at this Excel table and we were in the sort of biking sphere. So we were focused on the biking numbers. And I was looking at the census number and there's the walking numbers and there's the transit numbers. And like you put all those together and you end up with something really powerful. And it doesn't matter to me very much whether you have more transit, more walking, more biking. You need to be up around 50% to really be making a dent in this sort of climate crisis. And most cities in the U.S. aren't even close. So if we're serious about addressing these issues, we have to start measuring what what matters and looking at those numbers and changing those outcomes. And, you know, there's more to it than that. But to me, that's where the the sort of core of the problem is. And when you look at the... uh, sort of rewrites of the manuals. The manuals are like, 
yeah, we'll change a few things here and there. And the people who are working on them, it's super hard and it's a slog and I recognize all that, but it's time to just hit the reset button, start over, evaluate the status quo, evaluate potential changes and evaluate them on the same playing field. The status quo should not be preferenced uh, with this stamp of approval for safety because it's not. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that reset button uh, is is right on on tr- on track with that. I'm I'm all with you. Let's let's hit that reset button. And I think it's important because it's when you look at uh, like say the crow manual from you know from this uh, the standpoint of the dutch you know they take into consideration you know not only the the safety of all roadway users um, but also the health and and well-being and you know they they look at it from these multiple dimensions when they look at the five principles that they have in there and, you know, it, it's it's like so incredibly holistic, you know, when you think of that and you're just like, yes, come on, guys, let's go. We have this opportunity. I boil and lots of people do this, but the, the sort of boiling down for me uh, of both the sort of Dutch and the and the Danish systems are like two points. And there, there's a lot of other detail and it's complicated and it's hard. But so. Because human bodies are squishy and can only handle a certain amount of force, we need to recognize that as we build roads. So here's the two points. One, if you don't mix walking and biking above the speed with with which uh, fatalities are likely to happen. And so somewhere, you know, give or take 20 to 30 kilometers per hour, somewhere in there. And so if you're mixing walking and biking, the speeds need to be below that speed and there needs to be infrastructure on those streets. The Dutch always say, that, oh, there's no infrastructure on our, our local streets. There's a ton, it's traffic calming. It's traffic calming all over the place. Something like 75% of their residential streets are traffic calmed. That's why it works. That's why you can mix. You, this whole idea of we're just gonna like lay it out there and then see what happens, doesn't work. You have to put that traffic calming as the infrastructure. So point one, if you're gonna mix, then you need to have uh, traffic calming on those streets. If you have speeds, speeds that are above that threshold, then you need protected infrastructure. That's it. Like if you wanna have a vision zero system, that's what you do. No messing around. There's human bodies in uh, central Texas are the same as human bodies in the Netherlands. Our minds may be different <laughs> a little bit as we think about things, but the reaction of the human body to force is the same. And so, If we're going to be serious about Vision Zero, then we need to build communities like that. And that's what has been, to me, so powerful in looking at the Netherlands is uh, their sort of sustainable safety system, which developed about the same time as the Swedish Vision Zero system. Basically, they just systematically did it over like 30 years and transformed their fatality numbers. If you look at fatality numbers, say, in 1970, in the Netherlands, they were higher than the United States. And what they did is they said, that's unacceptable. And they changed it. And now what we need to do is the same thing. We have unacceptably high fatality numbers. And, and it's not just fatalities, it's serious injuries. And it's, it's that lack of freedom about being stuck inside your little bubble. And we need to look at that and say, this is not acceptable. So it's a political challenge too. And we can dance around our manuals, but our manuals aren't working. Why don't we look at what's at the places that have seen the most success and are the safest and and do what they're doing or at least test it out on a really large scale? 
Uh, we're not even doing that. We're just sort of pretending that everything's okay. And you need a movement like you saw the Stop the Kindermord child murder campaign in the Netherlands. They're very direct. The movement in the 1970s said, we're not taking it anymore. And it really transformed Dutch streets. And it took a while, but we could do the same thing here. Yeah. So I suppose we should probably clarify for uh, the audience uh, the, the stop the the, the Kindermort. Uh, so the, yeah, so in the 1970s there was a whole bunch of things that were simultaneously happening in in the Netherlands, including that increase in fatality rates that were happening out on the streets and an extremely high uncomfortable level of kids uh, children that were being killed in the streets and seriously injured in the streets by this uptake of motor vehicle traffic that, you know, had previously not really been seen uh, in in the Netherlands. But uh, post-World War II, this this sort of, you know, started to really boil up. Car culture started to, to really boil up. Well, in addition to that, yes, there were other things like the oil embargo and other types of movements. And, and there were many other activist movements that were also taking place. But this was one of the, the movements. It was a lot of parents that were coming to the streets and protesting and, 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 you know, basically saying stop the kindermort, you know, stop the child murder. And, uh, and it was one of, you know, one of the things that helped sort of swing the tide and, and change what was happening on the ground, on the streets there. And, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you, you have those moments where you have that little inflection point, you have that shift. Now you mentioned a couple of different things there. You mentioned, our minds may be different here in central Texas and, you know, and, 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 but it, but that also leads to, you know, a little bit of a cultural type of thing. And, and we're so quick to dismiss that, oh, it's not in our culture or our nature, you know, as Americans and, and as, you know, residents of cities in North America, you know, we're a car culture, we're not a bike culture. And, but what's interesting about that is that, uh, we are. You, you said it. We're all squishy. We're all humans. We all, you know, we, we ultimately come from the same place. And what's fascinating about the experiment that, you know, sort of took, you know, took place in the Netherlands and then was duplicated in an environment that didn't have that same culture in Seville, Spain, when they dropped a, a complete all ages and abilities cycle network into Seville, uh, they were able to see just a dramatic increase in, in people, you know, walking and biking and, and getting out of the cars. So the whole point that, that I try to make in, as part of creating a culture of activity with the Active Towns movement is the fact that when we change the built environment to truly support active mobility, we will respond as pragmatic, practical, <laughs> you know, humans and respond to our environment. Why don't you respond to that? Oh, that's a lot. Uh, first, I studied in Sevilla uh, way back in the day. Uh, it was one of the places that opened my mind to walking and biking. Uh, I brought my bike over for a study abroad program, and this is pre-everything. <laughs> there was no walking and bike, oh, there's walking infrastructure, but very limited biking infrastructure. And you could ride there. And in fact, I rode, I used to leave and go ride out on the in the hills through the uh, olive orchards. But the, And there was limited traffic, and you'd come back into town, and you'd have to cross this kind of nasty bridge. And I was like young and, and, and like, 
fearless. Uh, I was the fit and fearless rider and I did it. And, but now I have to, I have to go back. It's been on my list for a really long time. So sorry, that was like a bit of a detour. You mentioned Sevilla and I'm like, Oh, it's been on my list. But one of the interesting things to me that happens is, so I was a fit and fearless rider. I'm less fit now and a lot less fearless. And I, along with lots of other people, need to feel safe if I'm going to uh, walk or bike someplace. I just I'm 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 not willing to do it anymore. I, I felt like this revolutionary who was out there fighting on the streets for so long. And I'm like, I have too much angst. I can't do that anymore. When I travel to other places, I have a little bubble that I operate in in Austin and it works fine. And in Austin, that bubble's getting bigger. So it's really great. But the bubble still got some gaps in it. And I am not willing to push past those gaps with my squishy body. It's the third, that's the last time I'm going to use that term. <laughs> but it makes a big difference because that's how I sort of look at it. In other places, though, when I get plunked down in the Netherlands or Copenhagen, all of a sudden the world expands and it's infrastructure. And so you, there's lots of studies that have been done The sort of, if you build it, will they come? Well, yes, they'll come. Particularly they'll come if you have uh, protected facilities and if you connect those facilities into a network. Uh, when you do that, you see dramatic rises in bicycle use because it's safe. This isn't rocket science, creating safe places for people. They will use those spaces. And I'd, I'd sort of flip this around again. You know, it's not really a scientific question anymore about whether you build it, what they will come. The question is, how if are there studies of uh, when you if we built too much that they won't come? I would like to see those studies. Uh, to me, now the the onus needs to flip. We know this works. We know it creates safety. Now we need to do it. And we need to figure out how to create those sort of systems to make those changes. So it's challenging in multiple levels. But one of the great things that we've seen is that places can change. So we started talking uh, in the Netherlands, the De Pipe neighborhood, if I pronounced it correctly, apologies again, <laughs> is in Amsterdam. It was slated to have an interstate, not an interstate, I, I'm US, sorry, uh, a highway run right through the, the area. The canals were supposed to be paved over for this road. And that was one of the first places you saw this sort of uh, movement to stop the child fatalities. Now you go back to that neighborhood and it's unbelievable. Uh, I went with my child. They have they have these things called street trampolines. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. There's these li there's li little places. First, they, the tra streets are traffic calm. There's green infrastructure. The water gets soaked up. It's lovely and nice. And then they have these little play spaces for kids. And you can go jump on the street trampolines. And so my child and I, you know, I went to take myself to look at the infrastructure. And I told him we were going to look at the street trampoline. And we had just this amazing time. And that's the place where you, you know, the movement sort of started in the Netherlands. And so you've seen this dramatic transformation of streets, streets from places of fatalities and fear to places of fun. And we can really experience, you can experience that in the Netherlands. And increasingly, hopefully, you'll start to experience that in the U.S. and see these kind of the before and after picture change, you know, there's before where things were messed, you know, were okay, then we messed it up. And there's like an after after picture, where we start to see the reverse of this disaster movie, and we can really incorporate more livable communities and figure out really how to create better places for people. Yeah, you, you said political challenge and the political side of it. So let's dive into the politics of this just a little bit. Because it seems like we are seeing a little bit of of a shift of being able to address some of these difficult political questions. What's your take on it from an academic perspective? 
So uh, London is probably the most interesting case for that to me. So London's one of our case study cities. London did the Mini Hollands program. And the Mini Hollands program, basically, if you look at the data, it was for outer boroughs. And basically, and then you saw an increase in mode share. But the, the physical infrastructure was actually pretty minimal, although... In London, they think that there was it was a major change. There are a couple cycle tracks that got put in. Some of them connected together. Some of them were really good. Some of them weren't that great. But they were nice. They were okay, right? So you saw this when the when the Mini Hollands program went in. They they actually had funerals for the downtown for the little mini downtowns, the high streets, and they like carried a coffin that this is going to kill the high street. And then three or four years later, wow! Not only did it not kill it, it made it fantastic. There's more people, there's more life, there's more energy. And so you saw this program and then now it's transformed into healthy streets because one of the things that they learned is labeling something from another country, like the Dutch, the the English didn't like that. (laughs) What they wanted was healthy streets, healthy places, and it uses the same sort of techniques that they pioneered in the mini Hollands, but it focuses more on health and really on those sort of metrics. So it says, hey, there are lots of things that make a great street. We can focus on those. And you've seen this sort of slow change. There's still pushes push back to sort of low traffic neighborhoods. And it's still the kind of thing that the tabloids all pick up on. But this push has happened and all of a sudden they're starting to be better places and people go, oh, this isn't going to be the end of the world. In fact, it works out okay. And that process that you see in London is happening slowly in other cities and then really fast in some places. So there's this sort of uneven world of uptake. Some places have sort of shot forward and some places haven't. And it'll be a really, from a researcher perspective, interesting to look at sort of what happened in the places that shot forward. How were they able to pull these together? Like the London story is about transforming from the mini Hollands to the healthy streets to try and, you know, create this sort of political capital to push forward. But to me, one of the things that's interesting is success begets success. So creating pilot programs like resilience district pilot programs like you see in Copenhagen All of a sudden, you can see what it looks like when you marry better green and blue infrastructure to create a spongy city with walking and biking. There's a a, a area that is a a traffic circle, and the traffic circle was just asphalt when I first went. Now it's an urban forest with cycle tracks running through and cafes on the side. Water is managed so it's not flooding anymore. I have this wonderful picture of a family biking through there together. And it's just lovely and amazing and nice. That changes people's mindsets about what's possible. And it also changes mindsets about what we could do. So I'm a really big fan of figuring out a neighborhood and piloting it and showing local examples because people don't want, they don't care about the foreign planet of Copenhagen or Sevilla or, or even Vancouver. Vancouver is just amazing. We do some work on Vancouver. Look at what they're doing. They need like the foreign planet of the city next door to them. Uh, where they're having a competition. So like in Austin, for example, imagine that Houston starts to sprint forward. Well, Austin can't be uh, beaten by Houston. All of a sudden you need, you want that sort of local competition and local rivalry. And it shows what's possible. It's not a foreign planet to land these type of uh, projects. They work all over and we can make them work in local contexts. So what's the connection there in London between the Mini Hollands program and the 20 is Plenty initiative and the low traffic streets program that's going on there? 
Yeah, there are, there are a number of sort of movements happening all at the same time. The, the mini Hollands came in in 2014 somewhere, maybe a little earlier than that, somewhere in that range when uh, Boris Johnson was mayor of London. And it got sort of tagged at his his project and it did some good work, but it wasn't like dramatic changes, at least in the I went to Waltham Forest, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And there are, you know, a couple of cycle tracks. Mostly it's that black British asphalt all around with lack of, you know, lack of trees and whatnot in the street space. It works okay. And but then the Healthy Streets Initiative has really been the sort of big focus for change. And there's really been a dramatic sort of push in that area. And then you've had the other movements like the 20 is plenty. And you've seen a lot of those roads going in. And then the low traffic neighborhoods really and that during the pandemic, you've seen this sort of push. And then if you've looked, you've seen pictures of, you know, planters being knocked over and people push putting them back up. And so there's a lot of push, push and pull. But overall, you're seeing this slow change. You saw the same thing, to be honest, in Amsterdam. There was uh, movements to, uh, you know, put up barriers and then people pushed them down. And then all of a sudden, it just becomes normal. And it's okay. And that's really what you saw in the mini Hollands is all of a sudden, you know, from having a funeral for your <laughs> little high street to having a celebration. When I was there, I counted there were something like 15 prams uh, with uh, moms and dads and kids walking down the street. And it was lovely and calm and nice. And the businesses were all doing super well. So all of a sudden you went from, we have to have cars screaming past us to keep our businesses in, in uh, place, which doesn't make any sense because people are in cars and they're going somewhere else to, oh, this it's okay. It works okay. Uh, and we need to see more of that transformation process and figure out how to scale it up. And I think that's going to be one of the areas of really interesting research in the future is how do you take these best practices, put them in the context of local communities, and then work on equity at the same time. I mentioned equity a while back, and we haven't mentioned it in a while. In the book, we really spend a lot of time on this. These projects are super successful. They work. They add amenities to community, and then what happens? Those amenities increase uh, housing cost. So in New Orleans, for instance, we look at the Lafitte Greenway and how successful it was. I was involved with sort of the early process, some of the early processes of that. And really, we were looking at the revitalization potential of the Greenway. And I'll say we, we probably weren't looking enough at the affordable housing side of this. When you're in a disaster or in a place isn't working, you're thinking, oh, what can we do to make it better? At the same time, you need to be work looking at affordable housing. They need to be on this. The folks need to be working together on this because this, this stuff works and it works really fast and it can change housing markets. So if we're going to really deal with the real uh, twin cri crises that we're experiencing of climate change and then inequality, we have to put equity at the forefront of this. And in the book, we spend a lot more time on that, particularly in the New Orleans chapter. When you're putting in amenities into neighborhoods, particularly neighborhoods that haven't had those type of amenities before, affordable housing has to be at the forefront of those discussions and not like after you put them in at the same time so that the people who are there don't get pushed out. Really important to put those pieces together. Yeah, absolutely. It's improvement, enhancement of the neighborhood without the displacement. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, and it's and it works. There are lots of examples of how you can begin to do that, but it's hard. You know, we're siloed. We've got transportation professionals here. We've got water uh, planning professionals over here, affordable housing planners over here. If we want to create sustainable neighborhoods, truly uh, resilient neighborhoods, we need all of those folks to begin working together at the same time. And it's a challenge to our underlying city bureaucracy, maybe state and federal bureaucracy as well. And we need better answers to that. So we need better structures there. We, we know physically how to make better cities that are more resilient. We need to figure out how to create more social resilience and equity at the same time. And uh, we can do that, but it, it challenges our conversations. Resilience isn't something that happens over here with technical professionals. It has to happen with your walking and biking advocates, your affordable housing advocates. It has to tie all those pieces together, or we're going to create great communities with climate uh, gentrification. And we really don't want to do that. Everybody needs to have access to safe places uh, in the future, and we need to create the opportunities to do that. Well, I'm super excited uh, for our future and for those in the audience that are also excited and, you know, want to make a difference in their own community. What advice would you have for them? You know, I I, I have my work in New Orleans has been one of the things that I, I just really appreciated and, and basically got to sort of push projects forward. And to me, one of the things that I saw is that you know, you, it can change over time. Uh, when we started work in New Orleans, there was kind of a ragtag group of of people kind of pushing, looking at the, we talked about good bones. New Orleans has great bones. The streets are amazing and there's so much life and energy. And, you know, that's where, uh, that's where I'm from. Uh, and there was this sort of feeling, oh, we can do this, but boy, wow, everything's always seems harder. Well, it probably feels like that in every city. And what we've seen in New Orleans is really this dramatic sort of change. There were, I think, under five miles of bicycle facilities in 2004. And now I, I haven't looked at the latest number, but it's over like 130. And so this dramatic change has taken place. And you see this culture happening of people on bikes, lots of different people. Doesn't look only like people in spandex anymore. It looks like New Orleans much more. And that to me has just been uh, an amazing change. And hopefully you're starting to see that change in lots of communities. So it's, it, it's hard. It takes a while, but there's a real opportunity to sort of rethink those spaces to uh, hopefully look at what's great about your community and take, take some of the good work that's happening other places and put it together with what you got there and create better local communities and local visions for what you can do. Fantastic. If I'm hearing you uh, correctly, it's it's uh, be bold, be patient, <laughs> be persistent, and uh, good things can happen. Wow. I need, I need you as my wingman there. Uh, that was much better. <laughs> Fantastic. Hey, Billy, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you here today. Thank you so much for being on the Active Towns podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, put up a, a plug again uh, for my book. Hopefully the world opens up and I can come out and travel around and, and meet some of the folks who are out there in the network. And I just really uh, look forward to, to being out again in the world and walking and biking and letting the wind come through my hair. <laughs> here, here. I'm with you there. Thank you all so very much for tuning in to episode number 74 of the Active Towns podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this in-depth discussion with Professor Billy Fields as much as I did. 
I have a renewed appreciation for just how interconnected everything is in our world, from active mobility to land use to pollution and the climate. And add to that that our mobility and stormwater systems can work together rather than against each other. I do encourage you all to check out his new book, Adaptation Urbanism and Resilient Communities, Transforming Streets to Address Climate Change. I've included a link and a coupon code for 20% off in the show notes and on the landing page for this episode. Also out on the landing page, I've posted a few fun photos that Billy sent my way, including an awesome shot of him on the Amsterdam street trampolines. Well, before I wrap this up, here's my final fundraising plug. I hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible contribution to Active Towns. I'm sincere when I say that each and every donation adds up, is truly appreciated, and makes a huge difference in allowing me the ability to continue producing this content and grow the culture of activity movement. Thank you all so very much for your support. Okay, that's all for this week's episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers.